We're in second weekend to a new series of lessons we're calling Renovate, and we want to make a simple point today, but I think it's a point with a lot of implications for us. The point for today is renovation, real change of heart, character, is not only possible, but for those of us who are in Christ, it's actually what's expected. I don't know if you have heard the parable of the scorpion and the frog, but let me give you the parable of the scorpion and the frog. One day a scorpion looked around at at the mountain where he lived and decided that he wanted a change. So he set out on a journey through the forests and hills. He climbed over rocks and under vines and kept going until he reached a river. The river was wide and swift, and the scorpion stopped to reconsider the situation. He couldn't see any way across. So he ran upriver and then checked downriver, all the while thinking that he might have to turn back because a scorpion can't cross a river. Suddenly he saw a frog sitting in the rushes by the bank of the stream on the other side of the river. He decided to ask the frog for help getting across the stream. Hello, Mr. Frog! called the scorpion across the water. Would you be so kind as to give me a ride on your back across the river? Well now, Mr. Scorpion, how do I know that if I try to help you, you won't try to kill me, said the frog hesitantly. Because, the scorpion replied, if I try to kill you, then I would die too, for you see, I cannot swim. Now this seemed to make sense to the frog, but he asked, Well, what about when I get close to the bank on the other side? You could still try to kill me and get to the shore quickly. Ah, crooned the scorpion, because you see, once you've taken me to the other side of the river, I will be so grateful for your help, it would hardly be fair for me to put you to death. Now would it? Besides, when we get close to the other side, I'll move off of your back into the water and let you push me to the bank. In such a case, we will be equally dependent on one another. This seemed good to the frog, so he agreed to take the scorpion across the river. He swam over to the bank, settled himself near the mud to pick up his passenger. The scorpion crawled onto the frog's back, his sharp claws prickling into the frog's soft hide, and the frog slid into the river. The muddy water swirled around them, but the frog stayed near the surface so the scorpion would not drown. He kicked strongly through the first half of the stream, his flippers paddling wildly against the current. Halfway across the river, the frog suddenly felt a sharp sting in his back, and out of the corner of his eye, he saw the scorpion remove his stinger from the frog's back. A deadening numbness began to creep into his limbs. You fool, croaked the frog. Now we shall both die. Why on earth did you do that? The scorpion shrugged and said, I could not help myself. It's my nature. That certainly feels like the way it is doesn't it, as we relate to others, as we relate to ourselves? It feels like a leopard can never change its spots. It feels like genuine renovation can never really happen when you're stuck in a career that you hate, a life in which you're miserable, a marriage that's dragging you down. You can change a flower bed or a kitchen, but... It often feels impossible to renovate a relationship or a human character. But if Jesus is to be believed, and I believe he is, then true renovation is not only possible, it's expected. Now, contrary to its reputation in some quarters, Christianity is really a very optimistic mindset. Christianity holds out the hope of real change, real growth, which, according to the Bible, means true renovation of heart and character regardless of how desperate a situation we find ourselves in. 
Regardless of how entrenched our character or the character of someone we're close to, there's always the hope of renovation if Christ is involved. That's what we believe. And for some of us, that's what we've experienced. In fact, personal, even corporate renovation, corporate change, corporate growth is the expected spiritual condition for those of us who have a living connection with God. Not only is it possible... It's a guarantee if we build our lives on the right foundation and if we lean in the right direction. Over the next several weeks, we're going to talk about what a renovated life looks like and then that direction in which we need to lean and how it happens. But today, we want to talk about the expectation. Let's just unpack that as we get started in this series. Let's unpack the expectation that a living connection with God can and will bring about. It will bring about real growth in us. And I pray that this lesson would renew hope for some of us. Because I know in some of our cases we're struggling. Okay, so we're going to look at a passage that may be familiar to some of you. If you're connected to Gateway, you know that we believe it's our mission from God to build authentic Christian community in Northern Virginia. So we work awfully hard, we talk a lot about it, and we pray a lot about building real, meaningful connections with one another and with God. In fact, we're convinced that is one of the signature anthems of the whole Bible and of our experience with God. Well, if that's one of the signature anthems of the the Bible, then the opening paragraph of the passage that we're going to look at today is the chorus of that anthem. This is a passage that we've looked at a number of times at Gateway, and we're just going to spend a minute on that. We're going to spend most of our time on the second and third paragraph of this incredible section of Scripture from Ephesians chapter 4. If you have a Bible, open it up, or if it's on your phone, open that up. And look at Ephesians chapter 4, if you would. Ephesians is one of those little books toward the back of the New Testament. And this morning, usually, you know, there are a lot of different English translations of the Bible. And usually here at Gateway, we look at the New International Version. But this morning, we're going to look at the English Standard Version of Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 16. I'm going to skip a couple of verses right in the middle where the Apostle Paul marshals a passage from the Old Testament to kind of emphasize his point, and then he riffs on that a little bit and explains it. We'll skip that couple of verses. We'll read verses 1 through 6, and then 7, and then 11 through the end, through 16. So listen to verses 1 through 6, if you would. This is that paragraph that we've spent some time on before at Gateway. I'll have a couple of comments about this, and then we're going to move on to the second and third paragraphs. So Ephesians chapter 4. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So what he's done in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians is tell us about the enormous work that God has done on our behalf through Christ. What's happened in the incredible bone-shattering cosmic exchange between us and God because of what Jesus did. And the revolution that's happened out of the life and ministry and character and resurrection of Jesus. And then he says here, therefore, 
You've been called out. You've been chosen by Him. So live a life that steps up to that, that's worthy of the calling that you have received. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness. Now that word humility, you need to know, is, uh, is rarely used outside of the New Testament in ancient Greek, I understand. It's a word that might be better translated lowly. And in fact, it was not a compliment in any circle in the Greco-Roman world except for the New Testament where the followers of Jesus began to wear this characteristic, lowliness, servanthood. They began to wear that characteristic as a badge of honor. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love because the Apostle Paul certainly knew that if we're going to get along with one another, there's going to be a lot to bear because you people are a mess eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What he's really saying here is do everything you can to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he launches on this chorus of unity. Because there's one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called, one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We're all just wrapped up in a... Chorus of oneness. Okay, now if you would, for the second and third paragraphs, let's go old school and stand out of reverence for this piece of God's Word, and I believe that God has something to say to us today. So we'll look at verse 7, and then we'll skip 8, 9, and 10, and we'll go to 11 through 16. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the the shepherds, teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we will no longer be children tossed back and forth by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we'll grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. So, Father, like Jury has said, we don't believe we're here by accident, and we ask that your purposes would be accomplished. Really, your purposes would be accomplished in our time together this morning. Father, I want to pray that you would, in particular, renew our hope. Some of us have lost hope that there is any possibility for change in the situation in which we find ourselves. Some of us, Lord, have lost hope that real change is possible inside our own skin. I ask, Lord, that you would renew that today and that you would begin the process of speaking to us about how. Give us a vision for what it could be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, this is not the Apostle Paul's main point in this passage. 
But it's an underlying assumption for everything he says here. And it will be our main point today. Growth is the expected, even the natural spiritual condition for those of us who have a living connection with God. Growth is the expected spiritual condition for those of us who have a living connection with God. Did you notice all of the purpose statements in this section of Scripture that we just read, that second and third paragraph? Look, grace was given to you. He gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, and he lines out a a list of kind of leadership gifts that Christ has given to his church. And the purpose is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And the purpose of that is that we would all attain unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God. The purpose of that is we'd be mature to the measure of the full stature of Christ. And the purpose of that is so that we'd no longer be children. And we wouldn't be tossed back and forth and carried away. If, if Diane this afternoon were to say to me, I'm going to go get gas in the car so that I can go get groceries. Obviously, she's given her purpose statement in the same way these verses give the purpose statement of God's work in our lives. Verse 14, we will grow up into Him. Grow, the, he says later, the body grows and builds itself up. Growth is the expected spiritual condition for those of us who have a living connection with God. And of course, the Apostle Paul is just taking his cues from Jesus. Jesus told a couple of incredible stories that are recorded for us, little illustrations that are recorded for us in Mark chapter 4. I want you to hear this. Mark chapter 4, for us it's counted as verses 26 through 32. Mark records Jesus saying this. He also said, This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground night and day. Whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows. Though he does not know how. All by itself the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. Again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable, what illustration shall we use to describe it? Well, it's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed you can plant in the ground. Yet, When planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all the garden plants with such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. Now, when you hear Jesus use the phrase kingdom of God, I want you to think in shorthand something like God's control, God's sovereign activity over the whole universe, but especially in particular over my life. The kingdom of God, Jesus says, grows. That's its essence. That's what it does. God's work in us sprouts and it grows and it becomes a tree and we we may not even know how or when. God's work in us expands and becomes so large others can benefit from it. And I've seen that in my own life. I've seen it certainly in my wife's life. And I've seen it in the lives of many of you. I've seen the kingdom of God sprout and I've seen you become a benefit to others. I've seen you give life to others. Because that's what God's kingdom does. It grows. This is the way it is with all living things. I think I put a picture. Yes, this is Ed and Diane's redbud tree in our side yard. I wish I had taken it in the spring because you know what a redbud looks like in spring. The last three or four years, this thing has been spectacular. 
I go to our side window periodically and just stare out and marvel at what a gardener I am. It's incredible. It, it's it popped with red and purple. It's absolutely beautiful. Do you know where this red bud, tr- bud tree came from? It came from the little sliver of property that's right beside our office that we own. One day I thought, you know, I'm going to go do a prayer walk on our property. And I left our office and I started walking across our property and I sunk into about nine feet of mud and poison ivy and I thought, I'm not going to do a prayer walk on our property. I will instead pray at a distance. And as I was walking back, I noticed this cute little redwood. You know how they come out in the spring, and especially in woods, they just sort of sprout out like one kind of little random thing. They don't look like this. They form in your yard. They're surrounded by all these ugly trees on our property. And just this little sprout is gorgeous. And I thought, we own this thing. I'm going to dig that up and go plant it in my yard. So I understand now why we all go to nurseries to get our plants, because they have these nice little balls that the root system is in. You go out to a piece of property like that, and this little spindly little red butt, it had a root like this, and it had one sticking out that. It was miserable. I was covered with dirt by the time I got this thing out of the ground, and it had like four spindly roots going in all (laughs) different directions, singular Somehow I had to get this in the ground at my house. So I had nothing else to do. I strapped it to the top of my car to drive it from the church office all the way to Ashburn. I did so. I drove the thing to Ashburn. By the time I got to Ashburn, this poor little red bud was beat to death. There was not a flower. Most of the bark had stripped off of it. I thought, this will never survive, but it's small enough. It'll just take me a little hole. I'll go out there and put it in the ground and try it. It, you know, it had no roots, so I had to dig like nine holes to, get, to try to get these roots somehow buried for about three years. Every time a wind came, it would lean like that. I started putting rocks on the roots so I could keep them uh, stationary at least. Little by little, this thing, I don't even know how, this thing took root and it started to grow and flourish. Listen, <laughs> Against all odds, against the odds of being driven eight miles in a fierce wind, against the odds of the worst gardener on planet Earth, against all odds, this red bud sunk roots and it began to sprout and it turned into that. Really beautiful, beautiful shape, gorgeous growth by which... The Bible means the true renovation of our heart and our character is the expected spiritual condition for those of us who have a living connection with God because it's the expected condition of all living things. Living things grow. Now, we said this was not Paul's main point, but it was an assumption on which he says everything here in this passage. But let me give you Paul's main point. It's close. The Apostle Paul's main point here is that growth in all of us is the goal of God's work in each of us. Growth in all of us, together and individually, is the goal of God's work in each of us. He gives us gifts, Paul says. He deposits stuff in your life. 
He does a work in you, in your character. He excites you. He, he awakens and then He gives you or He nurtures in you capacities and tendencies. And He does a work in us, each of us, so that all of us might individually grow and so that together we might grow more fully into His image. That we might grow into a literal representation of Him so that w- when someone thinks about Christ, they can look at us and think, okay, I think I know what he might be like. This means that God doesn't want any of us to stay the same. It is an expectation that growth will happen because that's what the kingdom does. Let me repeat, this means that true renovation is not only possible, it's expected. I want to quote from, and if you need a text other than the Bible, which you don't, but if you need a text other than the Bible for this series of messages, This is a great book. It's not easy. Written by a philosophy professor from the University of Southern California, Dallas Willard. It's called Renovation of the Heart. And bear with me. I want to read, you know, a page, a a kind of a lengthy quote from Dallas Willard, if I can, talking about this. He starts the book this way. We live from our heart, Dr. Willard says. The part of us that drives and organizes our life is not the physical. This remains true even if we deny it. You have a spirit within you and it has has been formed. It has taken on a specific character. I have a spirit and it has been formed. This is true of everyone. The human spirit is an inescapable fundamental aspect of every human being and it takes on whichever character it has from the experiences and the choices that we have lived through or have made in our past. This is what it means truly to be formed. Our life and how we find the world now and in the future is almost totally a simple result of what we have become in the depths of our being. need to hang on to that point. In spirit, will, or heart. From there we see our world and interpret reality. From there we make choices. We break forth into action. We try to change our world. We live from our depths, most of which we do not understand. He unpacks that a little. Hold on. Do you mean, some will say to me, that the individual and collective disasters that fill the human scene are not imposed on us from without, that they do not just happen to us? Yes, that is what I mean. In today's world, famine, war, and epidemic are almost totally the outcome of human choices, which are expressions of the human spirit. Though various qualifications and explanations are appropriate, that is generally the truth. Individual disasters very largely follow upon human choices, our own or those of others. And whether or not they do, in any particular case you find yourself in, the situation in which we find ourselves are never as important as our responses to those situations which come from our spiritual side. A carefully cultivated heart will, assisted by the grace of God, foresee, forestall, or transform most of the painful situations before which others stand like helpless children saying, Why? Accordingly, the greatest need you and I have, the greatest need of collective humanity, is renovation of our hearts. That spiritual place within us from which outlook, choices, and actions come has been formed by a world away from God. Now it must be transformed. Indeed, the only hope of humanity lies in the fact 
The only hope of humanity lies in the fact that as our spiritual dimension has been formed by a world away from God, so it can also be transformed. Not only are we agreeing with Dr. Willard, we are heartily agreeing with Dr. Willard. Transformation can not only happen, it is the natural expected outcome of a living connection with God. So based on Paul's comments in this section, we know a few things about this growth process that's expected. Number one, we know, as Dr. Willard hinted, we know that growth is assisted. Our growth is assisted. Verse 7, Paul says, grace has been given. Grace has been given. Verse 11, he reiterates, look, he gave this to the church. Verse 16, he points out that from him come this chain of growth and maturity. In fact, not only is it assisted, it doesn't happen without assistance. I'm going to read again from later in this same section. So, spiritual transformation, the renovation of the human heart, is an inescapable human problem with no human solution. I won't read this. We may refer to this later in our series, but Dr. Willard does a great job of dialing through a little bit how frequently the spiritualities and the psychologies of today lean toward, lean into, bend toward going inside and finding the best of yourself and bringing it out. And Dr. Willard wants to make the argument that will not work. Because what's inside of you is a character that has been formed formed by choices, by things that have happened to you, by what you've done in response to those things. It has been formed by and in a world away from God. So spiritual transformation, the renovation of the human heart, is an inescapable human problem with no human solution. We take no satisfaction in pointing this out. It's something that can be learned from a survey of world history, world cultures, and past and present efforts to deal with human life by religion, education, law, and medicine. And this observation unfortunately stands firm when we take into consideration the many techniques that are taught in the various psychologies and competing spiritualities of our own day. Genuine transformation of the whole person into the goodness and power seen, for example, in Jesus and His Abba Father, the only transformation adequate to the human self, remains the necessary goal of human life, but it lies beyond the reach of programs of inner transformation that draw merely on the human spirit, even when the human spirit is itself treated as ultimately divine. Growth is assisted. We've been formed deep within by a world apart from God. So if we're going to be renovated in a Godward direction, we need an infusion of energy from outside of our environment to bring about growth and change, just like the red bud. If we had left that red bud in the middle of our yard and not worked so hard at getting some sense of dirt over the top of the roots, and if there had been no sun and no rain, if there had been no energy infusion from outside of that little red bud it had no chance of growth it would be a stick in our side yard 
We have sticks in our yard, so trust me, I know what they look like. And this one is not a stick. It needed an energy infusion from outside of its own skin. The transforming power of the Father communicated through Jesus the Son and applied to us by the Holy Spirit is the necessary power that can drive real renovation. And I want to suggest to you, I believe, and I want to suggest to you for you to noodle on no matter where you are spiritually, it is the only power that can transform the human character. Growth is assisted. Secondly, growth is inevitable. That's kind of what he means here by, I'm sorry, wow, Growth is not inevitable. That's kind of what he means here by, in verse 15, he says, you know, we gave it to equip the saints until we all reach unity so we no longer be children tossed to and fro by the ways, carried about by every wind of human. Verse 15, rather, as opposed to that situation where we're tossed back and forth, carried to and fro, not like that, rather than that. So growth is not inevitable. We can continue to be like little children tossed back and forth. We can be swept here and there by every thought that comes around. We can be a disciple of whatever we've heard last. We can be persuaded by every special we see about how this can't be true or that can't be the case. We can be. Growth is not inevitable. We must do our part. We certainly know this from our own experience. We also know it from the testimony of Scripture. Growth is not inevitable. Third thing about this growth is it's resisted. Again, that same verse. Look, I don't want you to be children any longer. Tossed to and fro by the waves. There are going to be waves. Carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, and by craftiness and deceitful scheming. There will be cunning. There will be people working against us. There will be systems working against us. Growth is resisted. Fourth, the end result of our growth is that we become representatives of Christ. Wow! We become more like Jesus. Individually and together, we become the means by which He, Paul's words here, fills up the whole universe. That's what we become. Last week we started this whole series by saying, I teed this up by saying something I believe is profoundly true. You want to be more like Jesus. Whether or not you know it, you want to experience life the way Jesus experienced it. You want to be able to offer life to, life to others. You want your life to be a life-transforming influence wherever you go. You want to have the peace, the security, the sense of purpose about His life. You want that about your life. You want other people to see that in you. And other people want you to be like Jesus. They want to experience the service, the self-denying service that lifts them up, that gives them life. If your husband, your wife wants you to be more like Jesus, your neighbor wants you to be more like Jesus, even if they don't know it. Your coworkers want you to be more like Jesus, and that is the goal of growth. The growth that God initiates in us, that's the goal. That we would be exactly what we want to be. And we're designed to be representatives of Christ. That's what happens when our character is renovated by a living connection with God. We become more like Him. 
Again, we talk a lot about community here at Gateway, and I think that's a clarion call throughout the Bible and throughout our hearts. We long for it. Every generation in the United States, around the world, you take surveys of people. What are the things that are really most important to you? At the bottom line, that all of us want community. We should know that that's the way we were made. The Bible tells us that from the beginning. At the beginning of creation, God looked at Adam and said, Wow, it is not good for man to be alone. So he made a partner. And he put someone with him because we were made for community because God himself is a community. Community is quintessential. It's it's very, very important. But listen, the end result of God's work in our lives is not community. The end result of God's work in our lives is Christ-likeness. We become like him. We represent him to the world. Wow! Now, we're going to continue to talk about community here at Gateway because the community is the environment in which that happens. That's why Paul is so insistent on it. That's why he launches into the the second part of his whole letter to the Ephesians is like practical life stuff. And he begins that by saying, look, therefore, based on all this stuff that God has done for you in Christ, therefore, I want you to live the kind of life that He picked you out for. When he said, hey... Vicky, follow me when he said, hey, Jordan, follow me. Hey, when he said, hey, Chris and Tammy, follow me. When he did that, he had in mind that we would be connected to one another and that we would live in community. So Paul elaborates on that. Look, you've got to be humble. You've got to be gentle. You've got to bear with one another in love. Because remember, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one, one hope to which you were called, one God and Father. Who's, it's a chorus of unity. But here's the deal. Within that chorus of unity, the words that we're going to sing are Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I want to be more like you. Because that's the work He's doing in us. All right. I don't know how God might apply this to you, for you this morning. In the coming weeks, we're going to talk a a little about practical application, how we do this. How do we get there? We're going to do some of that over the coming weeks. But this morning, aside from that, I want to give you four, let's call them implications. Things for you to noodle on today that flow out of this teaching and this passage and this idea that growth is the expected spiritual condition for you and I. Let's think about four implications for you and I to carry with us and cogitate on. Number one. Growth is the expected spiritual condition for those of us who have a living connection with Christ. So if you're not growing, something is amiss. Implication number one, if you're not growing, something is amiss. When you don't feel well, physically, you may say to your coworker or your friend, it's that time of year. I think I'm coming down with a cold. I think I'm getting that thing that's going around the office. You know that something is amiss. You feel off. You may not know exactly what it is. It could be the flu. It could be an upper respiratory infection. It could be a sinus infection. It could be the common cold. You don't know exactly, but you begin to address it because you don't want to feel badly. 
So you may sleep extra, partly because you don't want to feel badly, partly because you don't feel like doing anything else. And you'll take cold medication or flu medication. You will address it because you know something is amiss. Often we don't pay that careful attention to our spirits, do we? And if you're not growing, I don't mean from last week to this week, it's really difficult to notice. But if you look at the course of months and years, and your marriage is not growing, you're not growing in your connection to God. You're not growing in your Christ-likeness. You don't find yourself being able to be increasingly humble and gentle. In fact, it's more difficult for you to bear with those who are close to you. It doesn't mean you're a terrible person. It means something is amiss. It means you need to take that to God and say, help. This is where I'm at. This is who I am. This is how I feel. The Bible calls that confession. It also means that you need to come for the next several weeks as we walk through this. Second implication. There is always hope. If you miss everything else, don't miss this. There is always hope. If Jesus is involved, there is always hope. A period has not been put on the end of the sentence. There's always hope in your career. There's always hope in your relationship. There's always hope. There's always hope in your finances. There's always hope physically. There's always hope. Third, an implication. I don't know, let's call it a reality check. Renovation is usually difficult. Remember middle school? Remember growing pains? Remember, I don't know about the rest of you, but for us tall, skinny guys, you know, middle school, we were less than stellar. We were not always our most attractive selves. And I was growing at a rate that my parents could not keep up with clothes. So often, my pants were like this, which is not how you want to catch the bus for middle school in the morning. Renovation, change, growth is usually difficult. I know that, didn't even ask their permission, but I know that Pete and Anu have recently gone through a remodeling part of their home. Many of you have as well. It's a disaster. There's plastic everywhere. You have to move from one room to the other. There's dust. You can't find anything. Your stuff is in boxes, and the boxes have dust on the top of them. You have to move stuff around from room to room. It is a hassle. And renovation usually is. Pete, was it worth it? (laughs) I knew, was it worth it? Okay, yes. She knew she had to say that. Think of what we launched with this morning. Think of the characteristic of lowliness. The characteristic of lowliness is very seldom appreciated, even in our culture. When was the last time you went in for an interview for a CEO position and had the interviewing committee say to you, 
Okay, what would your friends say about you? My friends would say, I'm really lowly. I'm like a servant. Scratch that guy off. She is no longer on the list. And yet, this is the characteristic that God is building into our lives, and it is a beautiful characteristic to everybody around us. It makes relationships work. But it's difficult because you're swimming upstream as you become more and more lowly. You're swimming against the culture that has formed your character. There'll be hassles. There'll be some difficulty because renovation is often difficult. Fourth, since growth in all of us is the goal of God's work in each of us, since growth in all of us is the goal of God's work in each of us, If you are not playing your part in the body of Christ, then we all suffer. He said, hoping that everyone would feel a little bit guilty, but then feel a little better because the point is not to feel guilty. If growth in all of us is the goal of God's work in each of us. So the goal of God's work in you is not that you'll feel better. The goal of God's work in you is not that you'll be happier. Growth in all of us is the goal of God's work in each of us. So we all must do our part. We've said before, the math is simple. If I'm caring for myself, then I have one person caring for me. If this whole room is caring for one another, then I have 200 people caring for me. That's God's math. That's what he intends because he wants us to grow into full maturity, expressing the fullness of Jesus who fills all things in every way so that when the world looks for hope in a future, it can find it here. Let's pray. Father, I don't know how it is that you would have spoken to each of us today, but I I know that the goal of your speaking to each of us is the growth of all of us. I want to ask today, Lord Jesus, that you would begin in each of our lives to remove the impediments to our growth. We offer up to you this morning today, Lord, by way of confession, the things that we've done or the things that we've thought or the things that we've said, the things we've let our eyes see, our hands touch, in which and through which we're trying to find our meaning, our purpose, our pleasure, our life, apart from you. We haven't loved you with our whole heart, and we haven't loved our neighbor as ourselves. Not always. Lord, in this moment, we ask that you would forgive us. We thank you so much that When we confess our sins, you're faithful and just and you'll forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness because your desire is that we would be like you. We're so deeply grateful for the gifts that you've given us and we recognize, maybe for the first time or with a a renewed heart today, we recognize that what you've given us, you mean for all of us. What you've given me, you mean for everyone here. And Lord, I want to ask in Jesus' name that you would help us do our part. You would help us do our part to help one another be more like Christ. 
that you would help us do our part here to build the church that you dreamed about, a place where you can take up residence. Oh, Lord God, hear us and multiply these words for your purposes. In the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. And all God's people said,